Friends, would you stand with me as we read the Lord's word? We're reading from Matthew chapter 1 this morning, verses 1 through 17. We will be in the book of Matthew for the next few weeks um, as I am preparing to take us uh, through the book of Daniel um, in the next month or so. Again, let us now listen to the Lord's word. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The record of the genealogy or genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, and Amon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Would you please be seated, friends? Again, our Father, we thank you for your word and pray now that your blessing be upon your servant and upon these, your people, that you would give us ears to hear, that we would be greatly encouraged by what we've read and now by what we look into. We pray for your blessing, for your spirit's assistance, your aid, your guidance. We pray that you would help us to hear what is said and not to hear what isn't said. Would you grant this grace to us now? We humbly ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe wondering why I read this. It felt a little bit like I was just reading the phone book for you. Um, Jesus would warn in Matthew 24, saying, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. I was reminded again that there is a big problem, a great struggle that is uh, attacking the Lord's church in our days, and it's this idea of deconstructing people who come to faith in Christ and then they deconstruct 
I was told about, and I'd, not, I'd forgotten this, my daughter comes home and she shares all sorts of wonderful stories with me, and I'd heard this before and I'd forgotten about it, how there was a popular Christian group, women's group, uh, among the Christian uh, musician Zoe Girl, and one of the, the leader, the singer of that band, um, after she was done with her band, she was pulled into an inner circle with a pastor and a group of other people from the church, and there he began, the pastor began to confess how he didn't really believe the things any longer that he had once believed. And this was a crisis for her and her faith. It was a crisis to her because here was a trusted man who said that this is the truth and then all of a sudden he was no longer clinging to the truth. Jesus said that there would come a day that people would mislead. Many will come in my name, he says, saying, I am the Christ and will, lead, uh, will mislead many. As we look this morning at Matthew's uh, genealogy of the Lord Jesus, it is important for us to understand who Jesus Christ is. He's not simply a way. You understand, he is the way. The difference between the, the indefinite and the definite article are very important to understand here. He's the way. Matthew's point is this. It's important to remember who, um, to whom Matthew writes. He is writing to a Jewish audience. The Jews who would be looking for their Messiah, the anointed one who would come to be the prophet, the priest, and the king. Many would come claiming to be the Christ, yet what proof would they be able to furnish that they were indeed the Christ? Matthew furnishes proof. That's our point. Matthew here is furnishing proof as to who Jesus Christ is. Someone will say, well, how do you know that Jesus is really the Jesus? I know other people who call themselves Jesus or who call themselves the way. Really? What are their credentials, friends? What are their credentials? This is an important question. By the giving of this genealogy, he testifies that Jesus is the legal, rightful heir of the throne of Israel. This is our point. This is why this is written here for us. Now, you and I do not look so much at genealogical records, but understand that the Jews were very much interested in them as much rested upon these records. The idea of land and tribes and, and what land belongs to what people. The idea that there is a coming Messiah. How would you know who this Messiah is? And in our day, we are very much consumed with our, our feelings on things our experiences of things. Well, I think he's a Messiah because I just feel like he's a Messiah. That's not good enough. How many of you remember the French Guyana and Jim Jones? It could never happen. It's happening every day, friends. What are the credentials of these people who say, I'm the way, I'll get you to God. Matthew provides it so that our faith may be strengthened. Again, this genealogy serves as a document attesting to the validity of who Jesus Christ is, that he is the Messiah. Um, this was not an empty claim made by himself or by his disciples, but is grounded in the historic record of the sacred word. This should bolster our faith. Therefore, this is cause for us to rejoice that our faith and our trust is in Jesus Christ and is not built upon a soft foundation of sifting sand, shifting sand and a pious mysticism, but it is built upon solid historic truth. 
Your confidence in Jesus Christ is not a flim-flam. It is not ill-placed, but it is built upon a solid rock. We serve not a crazed lunatic nor a master deceiver, but the true and final king of Israel. My friends, do not doubt it. Believe it, and you can trust it. This is one of those passages where it would be quite easy to lose sight of the forest for the trees, so we will strive to stick with the obvious lessons that we are given and leave room for you to pursue further study on your own. There is a lot here to be able to look into. The first thing we look at as we read verses 2 through 16 is that Jesus is the true heir to the throne of Israel. It's a wonderful thing, and I hope you'll stick with me. Some of it we may meander a little bit, and it would be easy to be lost. The first and probably most obvious point of the passage of Scripture is to remove doubt from the Jewish mind of the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. As you see, Matthew begins with Abraham in verse 2 and traces Abraham's lineage down through David. Then from David down to Jeconiah at the time of Judah's deportation to Babylon. Then after the deportation, he traces Jeconiah to Joseph, who is the husband of Mary, but by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. Now, just as a little aside, very important to note here, all the way through, we read things like, Azar was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud. When we come down to verse 16, notice Matthew writes, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. Jesus is not the natural-born son of Joseph. He is the supernaturally conceived child of Mary, uh, conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. Very important point. Um, He is not the natural son of Joseph, but he is the legal heir of Joseph. This is important. Remember, we're speaking to the Jews. Matthew's writing to the Jews. He's making a case here on why they can look upon Jesus Christ as the true Messiah. Matthew has broken down the genealogy up into, he's broken it up into three sections, highlighting 14 names in each section. Um, it's as if the, the first section from, um, from Abraham, to whom the promise was made by God, uh, from Uh, from the promised child Isaac to the king of Israel under David. We see this as the origin of David's house. Then he traces it uh, under David all the way back down to obscurity to a lowly carpenter. Um, And then from Joseph, the husband of Mary, he closes with Jesus who is called the Messiah. So we see the origin of David's house. We see its rise and decline. And then we see its eclipse And now Matthew's genealogy is different than Luke's. So Luke records uh, in in chapter 3 a genealogy. They serve different purposes and are meant to teach us different truths. For instance, here in Matthew's genealogy, he starts with Abraham and he moves forward to Jesus. In Luke 3, Luke starts with Jesus and moves backwards all the way to Adam. They are both identical between Abraham and David. Again, one's moving forward, one's moving backwards. When it comes to Solomon, David, we are told in Matthew's account, David is the father of Solomon, and then da-da-da-da-da, all the way down to Joseph. When we, we come to Luke's account, it's David 
is the father of Nathan down to Joseph. And scholars believe that one is taking us down Mary's lineage back and, and the other is taking us through Joseph's. So one is portraying how David is the legal heir of the king of Israel and Luke's account is saying he's a descendant, a physical descendant of David. So the two diverge and then the two come together and one is traced back to Abraham, the other is taken back to Adam. Matthew's genealogy is meant for the Jewish audience and therefore it starts with Abraham. Luke's genealogy goes uh, is for a Gentile audience and traces all the way back to Adam, the father of us all. Matthew does this because of the Jews who have a conception of the Messiah that Jesus does not fit, as if he is saying, stop and look and see who this Jesus is. According to Alfred Edersheim, the Jewish leadership of Jesus' day were looking for a Messiah who would restore the nation of Israel and its glory. This is their conception. This is what they want. Matthew writes, pointing out that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham, that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. Remember the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 12. Paul brings this up also in Galatians 3. As well as we see here in in, uh, this fulfillment of the promise made to King David in 2 Samuel 7, where we read, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so we see in this genealogy that the Lord As Matthew is pointing out, the Lord is fulfilling his word. And and Matthew traces it all out so that the Jews can look at it and go, oh, I guess that makes sense. This Jesus is solid. He's authentic. He's the real thing. Look, legally, he is the heir of Joseph. Um, However, what he says does not square with popular opinion of what a Messiah should be. He most certainly is the true heir of the king of Israel, and we would do well to acknowledge this fact before it's too late. But this is not all that Matthew was doing. Jesus here, according to Matthew, is the culmination of the Old Testament, the one who brought in the new. In other words, Jesus is the one who the Old Testament scriptures point us to again and again. Now this is where it gets a little bit, and if you don't uh, pay attention or stay awake, you're going to lose things, and you're going to hear me saying all sorts of wonky things. Listen to verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Does he seem a little obsessed to you about 14 generations? When the scriptures repeat things repeatedly, right, you're supposed to stop and say, this is significant. This is important. Why does Matthew bring this up? If you turn over in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, listen to what Luke would write uh, at the end of his gospel. 
in verse um, in chapter 24 in verses 25 uh, through 27 we read this and this is speaking of Jesus to the, his disciples on the road to Emmaus and he said to them O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. One of my favorite verses, because it's, it's a key to understanding the Old Testament. Who was the, who was the, the great enemy of Israel during the days of the Philistines? It was Goliath, wasn't it? How easy, and how many times have you heard sermons about David and Goliath and overcoming your Goliaths. You realize that the story of David and Goliath, and while I'm sure and I'm, I'm quite convinced there are lessons to be taken away from that passage of scripture, you understand that the message of the David and Goliath is that a little shepherd boy from Bethlehem comes and defeats the great enemy of, of God's people. Who does that sound like? Who's the shepherd boy who comes from Bethlehem and destroys the great enemy of God's people? It's Jesus Christ who comes, who comes in meekness and, and what would be perceived as weakness of dying on a cross and he destroys what? The works of the devil. And so Jesus is pointing out that the whole Old Testament actually is pointing to me. I'm the Jesus. This is why I believe that pictures of Jesus are verboten because you can't encapsulate the Almighty, even the whole Old Testament, 39 books are not enough to give us a complete picture of who Jesus Christ is. That's why a picture of him would diminish the one who's infinite. You can't do it. And so as we look at this, and, and then we, we look at this verse 17 from Matthew. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. It's obvious that Matthew means to emphasize the number 14. He uses the number three times in our verse 17. To the Jew, numbers are quite significant. Uh, numbers are always significant in biblical literature. In fact, we fight a lot about numbers in the book, uh, in, in the scriptures. doesn't mean that the numbers aren't literal. At times they are literal. For instance, uh, the days uh, of Noah's flood, it rained 40 days and 40 nights. How many days did it rain? 40 days and 40 nights, just what it says. How many days did the, the Israelites wander in the wilderness? For 40 days, and then when they didn't trust the Lord, they got stuck with 40 more years. Right? A year for each day that they wandered in the wilderness. Forty. How many days did our Lord fast in the wilderness? Forty days. And what about the number twelve? How many sons of Jacob were there? Twelve. How many disciples were there? Twelve. How about the number three? The number three carries with it the idea of fullness or completeness. How many persons is in our one God? Three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. By the way, one God, three persons, um, the same from all eternity. Each playing a different role in the Godhead, but there's one God. We don't worship three gods. There's a trinity. Isaiah's vision, how many times did, uh, did the seraphim say, holy? Three times, holy, 
holy, holy. The ironic blessing. How many times is the Lord's name invoked? Three times. Three times. The number four is also uh, carries a similar idea of totality. We, we read in the scriptures in Daniel 8 about the four winds, or in Jeremiah 49, the four ends of heaven, or in uh, Daniel 11, the four points of the compass, or in Revelation 7, four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Now, this is where we start to get, you, you might think, I'm, I'm a little bit off my rocker, um, but I, I also consulted commentaries on this. If three and four both carry the idea of fullness, what, is, what about the number seven? Hang with me. Seven is even more emphatically uh, stated in scriptures. There's seven days in a week. How many churches in Asia did John address? Seven churches. How many spirits does John write about? The seven spirits of God. Is he saying that there's seven Holy Spirits? He is not. He's saying there's one spirit who's perfect. He's complete. There are the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls of wrath. Seven itself uh, carried, would carry a special meaning to the Jews. So if seven is a significant number, Again, stay with me. I know this sounds mad. How about the number 14? Two sevens. Two sevens make 14. And what do six sevens make? They make 42. But notice what Matthew points out to his Jewish readers. Um, Who is it who ushers in the beginning of the seventh set of seven? The Messiah. There's two groups of seven, 14 years. There's a second group of, of two sevens, that's 14, right? And then there's a, a third set of 14. That's six sevens, that's 42. And so here is this coming in who brings in the seventh seven. Up to this point, there's been six sevens, now there's a seventh seven. What is this saying about the Messiah? Matthew is saying something quite significant about this Messiah to the Jewish mind, maybe not so much to the Western mind. We look at this and go, whoa, you lost me. I like to do tic-tac-toe. Matthew is saying something significantly through the numbers, through the arrangement that the Jews need to understand. You've been looking for this complete one. You've been looking for this perfect one. This is the guy. He's the perfect one. He's the seventh seven coming into this, this world. He clearly emphasizes the number 14. But are there really three sets of 14? And, and the answer, the short answer is yes, because Matthew says there are. But a simple counting of the list reveals that the third list, after the deportation to Babylon, only shows 13 names. Was Matthew wrong? Did he miscount? Did he pull a fast one, or is something else going on? And we would argue very plainly, yes, something else is going on here. It would be very unwise for the gospel writer to claim three sets of 14, but really only give two sets of of 14 and an incomplete third. This would utterly destroy his argument. It is believed, however, that Matthew counts Jeconiah at the end of the second 14 and the beginning of the third. He counts him twice, and here's why. In the time of Jeconiah, 
One commentator points out, all was very dark, spiritually speaking, for Judah during, uh, during the, his reign as king. He reigned three months. He was carried away under Nebuchadnezzar. And Jeremiah in chapter 2230 prophesies that he will not have a child sit upon the earthly throne. And I stress the earthly throne of Israel. And he did not. But in his imprisonment, and you can read about this in, in 1 Chronicles 3, 17 through 18. In his, first, in his imprisonment, things take a turn for the better. He has children. He is freed from prison. He's treated kindly by the king of Babylon. He dines with. He is given an allowance. He even receives a seat above the seats of the kings that were with him in Babylon. We see a sharp contrast in Jeconiah's reign. He's counted twice in this list. Um, some say, well, we don't do things like this. Do you know how many presidents we've had? Nobody wants to guess. I didn't want to guess either. 46 presidencies, 45 presidents. And some of you are hoping for 47 presidencies and 45 presidents, right? Um, Grover Cleveland had two presidencies from 1885 to 1889 and from 1893 to 1897. So we have an inconsistency in the numbers, but they, they add up because we had two presidents. So there really is a set, three sets of 14. Matthew's, uh, Matthew's record is not so much demonstrating a chronology, but the Christology and arranges it into three groups of 14 and drives home the point to his readers that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the one who ushers in the perfect kingdom. He's, he's ushering in the perfect kingdom. He is the ultimate fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. William Hendrickson, and I, I recite this to you because I thought it was marvelous how he summarized it. He said, in him, that is in Christ, the new and the old meet. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the heart and center of all. Apart from him, there is no salvation. He is the Messiah, David's true antitype, and in the course of redemptive history, as here symbolized, it, in it, its three great stages, God's plan for eternity was being perfectly realized. Verse 17. This is what Matthew's point is, that the kingdom of God was being perfectly realized. And so for people to say, well, we're not just not really sure about this Jesus fellow, that he's really the Messiah. You know, because he doesn't, he doesn't do what we think he ought to do. It's not quite what we were, were hoping he would be. We were looking for somebody who would come in with power. We're looking for somebody who will tell Rome to shove it and set everything straight and return the golden age of Israel. That's what we were hoping for. But understand, friends, as, as Matthew is pointing this out, he is the one who legally fulfills the description, who is the rightful heir of the throne of David. He is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament pointed forward to, the perfect realization of the kingdom of God. Also notice this, and this is significant for each of us sitting here today, that Jesus Christ was born to identify with sinners. As you read over verses 2 through 16, and it is a bit like flying in an airplane. If you've ever had the window seat in an airplane, and I've always marveled at it, 
you look out that window and you see patches and squares of, of grass and some are brown and some are really green and you see the pivots, you see all of these things and you fly over and you realize that each of those plots of land belong to somebody, some farmer, some rancher and, and they all have lives, they all have a different story. But we never stop to consider that each of those, um, those stories have a, have a whole life of their own. We just kind of pass over them. So if, if we were to take months going through Matthew 1, we could preach a sermon on each person in this list. Again, this genealogy is written against the backdrop of a Jewish audience, a Jewish audience who had a different idea about who the Messiah ought to be. They were looking for a political Messiah who would restore Israel to the glory it once had. They were proud of their heritage, of Abraham, of Moses, of David, and Solomon. They were God's chosen people. However, this Messiah, we're not so sure about this. Remember the disparaging marks, remarks made about Jesus. Was he not the carpenter's son? Do we, know, do we not know, rather, his father and mother and brothers and sisters? Do we not know where he is from? And worse still were the insinuations. We were not born of fornication. One father have we, even God, as if to imply that Jesus was the product of a, of a, of a, of a fornicating relationship. And they would say in John 8, are we not correct in saying you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? Jesus did not fit their preconceived ideas. There is no doubt, however, of his lineage, of his being the Messiah. Matthew makes it very clear, friends, that the Jews do not have anything to boast about as far as lineage is concerned. And two, Jesus came to identify with sinners, not the righteous. Friends, if I were writing a genealogy and I were going to try to convince the world that Jesus was the Messiah, I would have left out all the parts about the skeletons in the closet. When you want to put your best foot forward, you don't share about the skeletons in the closet. And Matthew clearly records the skeletons in the closet. Briefly, these are pride killers. He includes women who the Jews did not treat or think highly of. He mentions Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, he mentions Mary. Remember, Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah who played the prostitute, and Judah commits incest. She conceives twins, Perez and Zerah. And Rahab, she was a Gentile, a prostitute in Jericho who protected Israelite spies who feared the Lord and gave birth to Boaz. And Ruth, she was a Moabitess. The Moabites were the enemies of Israel. And Bathsheba, she was the wife of Uriah the Hittite, a Gentile. David committed adultery with her, murdered her husband, and she would be the mother of Solomon. And then there is Mary, a young maiden who would be pregnant out of wedlock. Here, Matthew records the women, they are Gentiles, they are immoral. And you think that's bad, it gets worse. Look at the men. There's Abraham, and Isaac, both who throw their wives under the bus by allowing other men to claim their wives as their wives. And there's Abraham, who has a child with Sarah, a handmaid, Ishmael. There is Jacob, whose name means supplanter or deceiver. 
There is Judah, again, who visits a prostitute and would have her killed until he finds out that he was the man who got her pregnant. And then there's David with his adultery and murder and Solomon with his 700 wives and 300 concubines who because of these women led him astray and he offered foreign sacrifice to foreign gods and, and hurt Israel. There is Asa with his pride and Isaiah with his pride and his leprosy. There was Manasseh who was wicked, who offered his children up as ungodly sacrifices, who engaged in pagan worship and immoralities and on and on and on. What we see is not a lineage in which to boast, but one about which a person should be shamefaced. That if anything, they ought, the Jews that is, be feeling a total sense of inability and desire for someone bigger than this life, bigger than this world. How can they look back and say, oh, I'm not affected by those things. They think their problems are simply Rome, and Matthew reminds them, You've got a bigger problem than Rome. You are sinners. You are descended from sinners. And you are under the wrath of God. And Jesus Christ came into this world. At just the perfect time. To deliver the likes of you from death and judgment. That's what he points out to them. He's the Messiah. The rightful heir. He's the savior of sinners. He is everything that we've been looking for, and it culminates in him. This is why, my friends, Jesus Christ has come, because of an amazing love for his people. And Matthew's point is simple. Stop looking. He's here. Believe. Believe upon him. He is the end of the list the one who has come in fulfillment of these promises, who comes and is a blessing, who comes and conquers a a, a people's rebellion, who comes and establishes a kingdom, who comes and is reigning. He is the one who had glory before the incarnation. He did not need an earthly visit as if he needed anything. He came, my friends, for you and me. He came for you and me. He has identified himself with us that he might redeem us from our lost condition. The Jews need, needed and need this Messiah. And we need this Messiah. This is why we celebrate the incarnation, the taking on of human flesh. Of course, we don't just celebrate it, do we, once a year. We celebrate it every Sunday. We celebrate the resurrection every Sunday because by his resurrection, he justified us. We've been declared right with God through what Christ Jesus came to do. My friends, if you've not rested in Jesus Christ, I would be a fool to think that just because you come to church, you're a Christian. Martin Lloyd-Jones reminded his congregation, reminded his students that you should always preach the gospel to the church. You should never think that everyone sitting in church is a believer in Jesus Christ. And as we're seeing that it's very easy to put on an appearance of Christianity and still have a heart that's very far from resting in Jesus Christ. 
You're disciplined, you work hard, you give, you do all of these things, but you have not yet come to rest in the one who gave his life for sinners. Apart from the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, there will be no and is no forgiveness of sins. All of the sacrifice, all of the deeds done in earnestness will never amount to enough to make you right with God. But in this table and in this sacrament, we see, we witness that one came in our place to do what we could not do. And I would urge you, if you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, today is the day. He will not disappoint you, and you will never find his Savior beside him and other than him. Let's pray. We thank you again, O Lord, for your word, and thank you for those men who have gone before, who have studied these things, and who help us even now to understand them. I pray, Lord, that we would rejoice in Jesus Christ, that we would love him, that we would trust him, and that we would stop looking and we would see that he alone is the true Messiah, the rightful heir of David's throne, the one who was the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament pointed to, the one who came to identify with the sinner as we are. Thank you for your love for us. It is not what we have done for you that we boast about, but rather, Lord, it is what you have done for us. That is our boast, and so we praise you for it. And ask all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen.